Psalm 28 will be the psalm that we are working through this morning. We will begin as we do every week by reading the psalm together, then we'll pray, ask the Lord to bless his word. This is, of course, a a psalm of David, as are the ones we've been working through, as are most all of the ones in books one and two of the Psalter. David here is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and we begin in verse one. He says, To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands towards your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of His hands. He will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord, for He has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In Him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults, and with my song I give thanks to Him. The Lord is the strength of His people. He is the saving refuge of His anointed. O save Your people, and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Let's go again to the Lord in prayer. Father, the words of your servant David as he served as king over your people were not only a call for you to save him, but to save your people through him and through his salvation. He longed for your deliverance, especially when he was surrounded by wicked and evil men. And he knew that he could go to you and cry out to you to lift up his prayers to you and you would hear You would respond. You would act on His behalf because you had said you would do so. You had made promises to Him. You had made Him a covenant partner. And let Him know. You had had told Him that you would establish His throne forever. And so He trusted in you. And Lord, in the same way that deliverance came not only to David, but through him to his people. In the same way you have worked an even greater salvation in the greater David and our Lord Jesus. So that through him, as we are united to him and as he is our king, because he has been delivered, because he has had victory over his enemies, because He has been exalted over all dominions and authorities, we too will know the same salvation. And so Lord, we pray that as we consider the words of, these, of, of this psalm, we would not only know what they meant, know what their implications were for David and those in his day, but ultimately, Lord, that we would understand what they mean for us now and what they point forward to and the salvation that is to come. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning as we look at this psalm, I want to broaden our perspective. I want us to give a, I want to give a sort of a, a bird's eye view 
of this psalm. I want us to think about its meaning and its significance in light of the whole canon of Scripture. This is something that I've, I've tried to do as we've worked through some of these psalms, and I've, I've done so because it can be very easy to read these psalms in isolation. It can be very easy to read them as if they're just poems or songs that are disconnected from the rest of Scripture. And then as we try to apply them and appropriate them, we're left with just finding a random set of words and phrases that stand out to us and we apply them based on how they make us feel. That's often how the Psalms are treated. They're sort of ripped out of their context, both originally and in the larger view of Scripture. We don't want to do that. We want to understand how they fit in the whole storyline of the Word of God. And of course, this is not just the Psalms that are treated like this. This approach happens very often in particular with Old Testament books. Nehemiah builds a wall and then we ask, you know, what walls is God having you build in, in your life? Right? And, and what sort of enemies are getting in the way of you building that God-ordained wall in your life? We read about Samson killing a lion and we ask, what are the lions that I'm facing in my life? And what sort of supernatural work that, that God can, can work in me so that I can have victory over these lions. As I mentioned a week or so ago, Scripture is turned into one big allegory about my own personal situation. And people tend to do this because they find the Old Testament to be overall strange and foreign territory. Very often it is the case that people just don't know what to do with the Old Testament. And very often it is the case that what they hear from the pulpit is just an allegorizing of the text as well. And so they practice what they hear. They practice what comes from the pulpit and the practice of allegorization continues. But Scripture, of course, has its own story. Its author is God. And who the story is about is Him. He is both the writer and the main subject. It is not primarily about us, though we are certainly a part of the story. It is primarily about Christ and the redemption that He accomplishes and that comes about in and through Him. And many of the important figures that are found all throughout Scripture, whether we look back to the beginning at Adam or Noah or Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, the whole nation of Israel, or David himself, many of these important figures are in some way previews of the revelation and entrance of Christ into the world. And we have to understand that storyline. We have to understand what God is doing in the world through Christ in order to properly understand our place and our role in the world and in the story, and in order to properly apply Scripture in our own context. And so this morning, we're going we're to be very intentional to see this psalm in light of the whole of Scripture. Beginning first with David's context, and then moving to the sense in which this psalm previews the work of Christ, and then we'll conclude with a few points of application. So let's begin first by considering this psalm within its original context, David's context. This psalm is essentially a prayer of David wherein he is asking the Lord to simultaneously save him from his enemies. Save him from the evil and the wickedness of his enemies while at the same time he's calling for their judgment. Right? So his salvation is going to come in and through the condemnation 
of his enemies. But he's not only praying for his own salvation here. He understands that his salvation, what God will give to him, what God will do for him, also means salvation for the rest of the people of God. It means salvation for those who are under him. We have to remember, right? David is the king. He is Israel's representative. He is, in a very real sense, Israel's government, as he is its supreme commander. What happens to him will happen to all those who are under him, to all of his people. If David is defeated, Israel is defeated. If David's kingdom falls, the promise of God falls and God's people fall. But conversely, if David is saved, his people are saved. And if his kingdom stands, the citizens of his kingdom will likewise stand and they will be blessed. And this is why we see at the very end of the psalm, David moving from a prayer in the first person to a prayer in the, second, in the third person. He transitions here from praying for his own blessings to praying for the blessings of his people. We can see this at the very end. Verses 8 and 9, if you look with me there. Just after saying that the Lord is his strength, he then says the Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed, of his Christ. And he says, oh, save your people and bless your heritage. David's salvation means salvation for the people. He is their representative. He is their mediator. He is their king. Their salvation comes through the salvation given to David. And so it's important to recognize that this is not only a prayer for himself, but a prayer that is mediating blessings to all of those who are under his kingship. Now, the psalm, as it's divided, essentially has four parts. The first part is in verses 1 and 2, where we find David offering up a prayer to God to keep him from death. He asks the Lord to hear his call, to not be silent. And so here he's asking for the Lord to act on his behalf. And when you're calling on the Lord to, to hear you, to answer you, you're calling upon him to act on your behalf. And what David desires specifically is that he would not, he says, become like those who go down to the pit. Now this is most often a phrase that is used, a poetic phrase that is used that just refers to death, to dying. David is calling upon the Lord that he would keep him from dying. And this is what you find throughout the Old Testament. You find it as well with King Hezekiah, for example, was thanking God for sparing him from dying from a certain illness that he had contracted and God was going to extend his life for an additional 15 years. And Hezekiah offered a prayer of thanksgiving and he said that the Lord had delivered his life from the pit of destruction. And he adds in Isaiah 38, verse 18, he says, For Sheol does not thank you, death does not praise you, those who go down to the pit, those who die, do not hope for your faithfulness. Now, whereas when you come to the New Testament, there is much more of an emphasis on heaven 
and life after death. In the Old Testament, salvation was often conceived of very much so in this worldly terms. So salvation here means you don't die and you remain in the land of the living. And judgment means you die and you go down to the pit. And so David is praying to the Lord that he would spare him from death, which is supposed to be the lot that belongs to the wicked and David's enemies. As they are trying to bring the powers of death against him, as his enemies are trying to overthrow his kingdom and are trying to put him to death, he's calling upon the Lord to do the opposite. To give them death and to give him life. To establish his kingdom while their wicked plotting comes to an end. This then leads into the second part of the psalm. In verses 3 and 5, where David here prays that the Lord would deal justly with the wicked and justly with him. The wicked, in verse 3, are described essentially as those who are double-tongued. They are liars. They are hypocrites. Outwardly, they are speaking peace with their neighbors while inwardly, evil is in their hearts. They are flattering. They are telling you what you want to hear. They are saying all the right things that make you feel good about your relationship with them. They are speaking peace, while inwardly, there is nothing more than plotting and evil in the heart. They are very much like the Pharisees were with Jesus. As we read about in Matthew 22, when they were trying to entangle Him in His words. They were trying to get Him to say something that would be considered treasonous against Caesar so that they could then take Him to the local authorities. They could take Him to the, the Roman governor and have Him executed. This was what was on their mind. They want to trap him. But what do they do? What are they actually, uh, what, are they, what are they making known to him? We find that there's death in their hearts, but there appears to be life and peace on their tongues. They approach Jesus and they flatter him. They say to him in verse 16, they say, Teacher, we know that you are true. And teach the way of God truthfully. Now, we know who the Pharisees are. They don't think he's a legitimate teacher. They don't think he teaches the way of truth accurately. They're plotting to kill him. That's what's in their heart. Nothing more than death. And yet when they come to Christ, they flatter. They say all of the right things. They speak peace to him. Teacher, you speak the way of truth. And they say, you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Right? What a great compliment. Right? You, you, you hear that? Somebody comes to you and they're like, you know, you, you, are a, you are a man of the Word. You stand firm on the truth. I love hearing you stand for the truth. That's what they're saying to Christ. While on the inside, they, they know. They're thinking of ways to kill Him. They're double-tongued. They didn't mean it. David is praying that the Lord would not treat him the same way these wicked, double-tongued men deserve to be treated. He trusts in the Lord. He loves the Lord. He loves righteousness. And so He wants to live. But He knows that they are marked by treachery. They are evil. And so the condemnation that would and should come upon them is a just condemnation. And He prays to that end. He says in verse 4 in particular, 
Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. They are wicked men, and so their reward for their wickedness should be fitting. The punishment should fit the crime. They are plotting evil against the Lord's King. They should not live. Judgment should fall upon them. David's reward is to be life, and the reward of the wicked is death. Then in the third section, in verses 6 and 7, David gives thanks that the Lord hears his prayer. His, his request has been answered. The Lord is David's shield. He is his protector. In the same way that the Lord had said to Abraham, when Abraham had rescued Lot from the kings of the east, the Lord came to Abraham and said to him, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. And in the same way that Moses blessed Israel in Deuteronomy 33, saying of them that the Lord is the shield of your help, and your enemies shall come fawning to you, and you shall tread upon their backs. David likewise is a covenant partner of God. David is in covenant with the Lord, and therefore the Lord is a shield to him. The Lord is a shield to his covenant partners. He saves them, and he gives them victory over their enemies. He hears their prayers. And David is thanking God that he has heard his prayer. And then in the final section of the psalm, in verses 8 and 9, as we saw earlier, David says that the blessings that come to him are blessings that also come to the Lord's people and the Lord's anointed, His Christ. They are blessings that are extended, in other words, through Him to those who are united to Him and who are under His authority. Now, as I said earlier, this is a psalm that I think is best understood within the larger context of the storyline of Scripture and God's redemptive works. John Calvin, commenting on this very psalm in the final verse of this psalm, said that in this, in what David says at the end, David declares himself to be a type of the Son of God. As we've seen before, as a prophet, David understood that in a, some small sense, his life was a preview and a foreshadowing of the life of Christ to come. In the same way that we might think of the earthly temple, that it was a type of the heavenly temple in the person of Christ. Or that the sacrifices were a type of the greater sacrifice was, that was to come in the person of Christ. Or the blessed promised land that flowed with milk and honey. How it was a type of the world to come in the new creation. So also was David, who spoke as a prophet, who ruled as a king, and sometimes even carried out the role as priest. So also was David a type of the prophet, priest, and king who was to come in the person of Christ. In fact, it is the case that whenever the prophets spoke about the glories that were to come in the future, particularly in the renewed and restored Messianic kingdom, they always spoke of them in accordance with the historical realities they were familiar with. So that what you find all throughout the prophets is that the coming Messianic kingdom will be ruled by David. His historical enemies, like the Philistines, will be conquered. Zion will be the capital of the kingdom. The nations who obey Him will offer sacrifices in the temple. And all people who remain on earth 
will submit themselves to the Mosaic law. The past, in other words, is projected into the future. Only at its completion, at its fulfillment, it's amplified. Historical Israel shall become global Israel. And the temple, which represented the presence of God and heaven and earth joined together in a single location, will become the temple of God's universal presence that will give light to the whole world so that there will no longer be need for sun or moon because the light of His glory will give light to all. Indeed, it was understood that the old temple was a kind of small representation of the whole created order. We can read about this, for example, in Psalm 78, verse 69, where it says there that the Lord built His sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which He has founded forever. The temple was a kind of microcosm, kind of a a small representation of heaven and earth. There There are degrees of separation. There are people who can enter some places and others who can enter others, right? There is a court. There is a holy place. There is a separation of the curtain that then leads you into the most holy place, which is the presence of God. Right? And as you, as you enter into the, the holy of holies, it's as if you are now in heaven itself. When you leave the curtain and you walk through the, the incense that's burning, you are leaving the clouds of the air. And as you enter finally into the courtyard, you have entered into the earth where there is the altar of sacrifice, where there is the the sea basin for ritual cleansing representing the oceans of the world. Again, the temple itself was built like the heavens and like the earth. And the kingdom of Israel itself was a small representation of that messianic kingdom that was to come. One Reformed theologian, Herman Bavick, puts it like this. He says, the Messianic kingdom is sketched by the prophets in hues and colors, under figures and forms, which have all been derived from the historical circumstances in which they lived. Palestine will be reconquered. Jerusalem will be rebuilt. And the temple with its sacrificial worship restored. Edom, Moab, Ammon, Assyria, and Babylon, all historical enemies of Israel will be subdued. All citizens will be given a long life and a relaxed setting under vine and fig tree. The projected image of the future is Old Testament-like through and through. It is all described in terms of Israel's own history and nation. And what this means for us as we seek to understand the meaning of this psalm is that the works of David here and the prayer of David here and the desire of David All of these are the works and the prayers and the desires of Christ Jesus, the promised offspring, the Lord's anointed, and the One who fulfills all of the Old Testament in Himself. When David cries out to the Lord that he would be saved from death, And his wicked enemies would be judged according to their works. This is most fully a prayer of Christ that he would be saved from death, vindicated as the righteous one, 
and that his enemies would receive the judgment they deserve. When David blesses the Lord, the Lord his shield, and for being the God that he can trust in with his whole heart, it is Christ who most fully knows the Lord, his Father as his own shield, and who trusts in him with the entirety of his heart. And when David calls upon the Lord to save his people and to bless his heritage, it is most fully Christ who asked the Father to save and to bless the people he has received as his heritage. Christ is the one who most fully fulfills and embodies the full meaning of the words of this psalm. It is His own life, it is His own ministry, and His ongoing role as our prophet, priest, and king that mediates the salvation and blessings prayed for in this psalm to us. So that in the same way that David the king in his salvation bring salvation to His people, so also is it the case for Christ our King. That in the same way He is saved, we too will be saved. And so with these things in mind, I want us to consider a few points of application. I have three of these. Three points of application. And the first is this. All of the enemies of Christ. All of the enemies of Christ will be condemned in accordance with the works that they have done. All enemies of Christ will be condemned in accordance with the works that they have done. If you are on the outside of Christ, if you are counted among the wicked, if you are among those who are characterized as being double-tongued, you are a hypocrite. You say one thing with your mouth while inwardly you are harboring deceit and evil. If lying is your way and the devil is your father, then you will face the just condemnation of God and will bear the full weight of the guilt of your sins. All that your sins deserve will fall upon you. Throughout Scripture, we see this taking place both in the Old and in the New Testaments. The Bible says throughout that God will judge each person according to their works. Which is to say that each will receive exactly what they deserve. This is what is said, for example, in Psalm 28, verse 4. When we read there, give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. The wicked have done evil. The wicked are plotting and are deceptive and are double-tongued. Therefore, repay them according to their evil. This is what is said also in Psalm 62, verse 12. For the Lord will render to a man according to his work. But of course, this isn't just in the Old Testament. This is also in the New Testament. Paul says, for example, of the false apostles who are deceiving the people, the members of the church at Corinth, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 15, he says that they're like Satan, who's an angel of light. And he says their end will correspond to their deeds. They will be judged in accordance with the evil that they have done. They've lived like Satan. They will suffer the end of Satan. We saw earlier as well, in Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 and 13, in a passage that's describing the last judgment, we saw there that the dead will be judged 
by what is written in the books according to what they had done. And then in another passage in Romans chapter 2, verse 6 and 8, or 6 to 8, the Apostle Paul says that God will render to each one according to his works. And then he explains to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. This is a description here of believers. They trust in Christ. They are justified by His blood. They are given the Spirit. And then they proceed to live lives that correspond to that new reality. Because they've been made new. Because God is working within them. Cleansing and righteousness and grace because He has prepared good works for them to walk in beforehand, their new regenerated lives are going to reflect that. They're going to be marked not primarily by the old man that's passing away. They're not going to be marked primarily by the sins of the flesh. Sexual immorality, lying, deceiving, thieving, covetousness, They're going to be marked by the new man. They are going to be like the seed in Jesus' parable in Luke 8 that falls on good soil and who He says, bear fruit in patience. Paul says in Romans 2, these believers, these who will receive eternal life are marked by doing good works in patience. They endure. They persevere and they bear much fruit. They seek glory. They seek honor. They seek immortality. And they will be rewarded according to what what they have sought. God will look upon His servants. He will see that they have held fast to their testimony of Christ. By His grace, they have adorned the Gospel with their lives and He will reward them. And He will say to them, well done, my good and faithful servant. But Paul also says, but for those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. These are unbelievers. They have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they have pursued an entire life of self-seeking and sin-loving. And when they are condemned and when they perish, they will perish in accordance with what they have done. And in the same way that David prayed that this end would come upon His enemies in His own day, so also does Christ pray that those who are His enemies in the last day will be repaid for the evil they have done. They will receive a just recompense. And He will be the judge who brings about that recompense. And so friends, you need to heed this warning. No man who persist in sin can have any hope of everlasting life. The mark of the true reality of a true faith is the life of sanctification that follows. This does not mean that you reach a point of perfection or glorification before the Lord returns or before you breathe your last breath. But it is abundantly evident throughout Scripture that those who have the Spirit, those who belong to Christ, will be transformed. If you fall into sin, you must repent. And it is certainly the case that real, genuine believers who have the Spirit get deceived, get deceived by the lies of the flesh, get deceived by false doctrine, and go into a variety of errors. But if you belong to the Lord, 
you will persevere. You will repent. God will work His grace in you in such a way that you will come to a realization that the sin you've been living in will kill you. And so you turn from it. And you are restored. And ultimately given the reward of everlasting life. If this is not how your life is marked, if in 20 years after walking with the Lord, or 30 years after walking with the Lord, you cannot look back on your life and see the genuine work of the grace of God at work within you. If you cannot say, I'm no longer who I once was. I'm I'm not who I want to be, but I'm no longer who I once was was you have to have a serious self-examination. You you have to wonder if the belief you have believed is true. Because true faith is evidenced by good fruit. God will make His people bear much fruit. And so friends, heed this warning. If you persist in sin, the end is wrath and fury. But a second point of application by way of promise is this. The salvation that Christ has known will be the salvation that His people will come to know. In the same way that David's prayer to be saved from his enemies and from death was heard. And through his salvation, salvation then comes to those in his kingdom. So also is Christ's prayer to be glorified with the glory that he had before the world existed. So also was that prayer heard. And through his glorification, we too will be glorified. In the same way that David said that the Lord was His strength, and by extension, the strength of His people, so also does the Lord, being the strength of Christ, make Him our strength as well. The same God who is the shield of Christ is the shield of all who belong to Christ. What happens to Christ is what will happen to His people. And thus we find in the New Testament that in the same way that Christ died and then rose again, so also if the Lord tarries, will we die. But then we will rise again. His death has become our death. His life has become our life. The kingdom that belongs to Him is also a kingdom that we are promised dominion over if we endure. But the disciple is not greater than the Master, of course. If He suffered, we too will suffer. If He was reviled, we too will be reviled. If He had to learn obedience through what He suffered, so also must we learn obedience through suffering. If He carried a cross, we too must pick up a cross and follow Him. If He endured, we must endure. If He wept, we must weep. If He rejoiced, we must rejoice. If He forgave others, we too must forgive others. His life is our life. Our old man has died, and now it is Christ who lives in us. He is the head. We are the body. If the body is persecuted, the head is persecuted. Because Christ and His church have become one. Which is why when Jesus confronted Paul on the Damascus Road, who was also called Saul, what did He say to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Me? Jesus identifies Himself with the body of Christ with the church because they are united in a covenantal marital union. As our King and as our Head, Jesus has joined Himself 
to us, His people, which makes us a people in the world who are an aroma of Christ. To some we are a fragrance from death to death, and to others we are a fragrance from life to life. To some who do not know Him at all, they want nothing to do with the people of God because to them the people of God remind them of death. Remind them of judgment. But for those who belong to Him, believers, the church is the aroma of Christ. We love to be around it. We love to smell it. We love the fragrance that it gives off. There will be some who love us because we are the people of the King, but there will be also many who hate us for the very same reason. But what we must remember above all is that if we belong to Him, although there may be suffering now, purifying fires refining us like gold, the end result is resurrection, glory, and eternal life in the kingdom of God. Because that was the end result of Christ. So His life becomes ours. Now the last point of application is this. Since the Lord is our sovereign King, He rules us now, and He will rule us forever. Since the Lord is our sovereign King, He rules us now, and He will rule us forever. The final line of the psalm calls upon the Lord to shepherd His heritage, to shepherd His people, and carry them forever. And to shepherd here just means essentially to rule. It's language that's drawn from David's own experience as a shepherd who later became a king who shepherded and ruled over the flock of the kingdom of Israel. When Asaph described David's rule in Psalm 78, verse 72, he says, with upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. And Christ does the same for us. He is our Good Shepherd. He is the Good Shepherd who lays His life down for the sheep. And He carries out His rule over us presently through the ministry of the Word and the work of the Spirit. It's a rule now that comes by way of promise. He gives us His Word and we are supposed to trust it. We are to trust that His promises will be fulfilled, and we are to trust that all of His commandments are good. In the same way that Abraham was given a command to leave his homeland and travel to a land the Lord would show him, and he was to obey that command because the Lord said it, and for no other reason, so also are we to obey the commands of the Lord that are given to us in His Word. And we are to obey them because the Lord has said it. Because He speaks, we obey. Christ governs His people as King through His law, which is given its most complete and mature form in the New Testament. But even this is still a rule that in a certain sense now comes by proxy. What we long for, most especially, is that rule which will be characterized no longer by faith, but by sight. We want to be able to be in the presence of the Lord, really and truly. It is the rule where His shepherding rod will be felt with our hands and the glory and beauty of His face will be seen with our eyes. But because He is our shepherd forever, the rule that we have and enjoy now will culminate in that rule that is promised to come forever. And so as we await that glorious day, we await with eager expectation. 
We humble ourselves now, walking in accordance with His ways now, so that at the right time that God has appointed, we will be exalted together with Him and will enjoy the fruit of the land in the new heavens and in the new earth where God will dwell with man. Our obedience now, our receiving of the Word now, our being ruled by Christ now, is the kind of foretaste, the preview of the glory that is to come. But as we've seen in previous weeks, if we have no desire for the Lord now, if we have no taste for His Word, no taste for His law, no taste for His rule, we will have no desire to be in His kingdom when that kingdom comes. So you have to examine yourselves. Where is your heart? Is your life marked by the words that we read earlier from Psalm 119? Can you say of yourself, I truly delight in the law of the Lord? Can you say that His, His commandments are good and right? Can you say that you want to walk in His paths? If you can say that really and truly, friends, then the promise that is yours in Christ is that the, the joy you've had with walking with the Lord now will ultimately culminate in the glory that is to come in the new heavens and in the new earth. Let's go to the Lord and close with prayer. Well, Father, we are grateful that You have given to us Christ our King. He mediates on our behalf. And He intercedes for us. And He has been exalted at Your right hand to be our prophet, priest, and king. And we are grateful, Lord, that He is a righteous King. And that He will ultimately bring about a day where all unrighteousness is vanquished from the world. Where all of the historical enemies of our Lord going back all the way to the garden with the serpent and with the entrance of death will be dissolved, will be cast away into the lake of fire and all that will remain will be glory without end. Sorrow will come to a completion and joy will fill eternity forever and ever. And we are grateful, Lord, that in and through Christ, we can have this great hope for the future and even a foretaste of it now. We pray, Lord, that through Your Word, You would shepherd us, You would show us the righteousness of our King, cause us to walk in His ways so that ultimately we enter into the promised land that is the new heavens and the new earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.